from the new recording lair located deep beneath the Wine and Spirit Store in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. You're listening to the Masonic Light Podcast. Studio 665 presents Masonic Light Podcast. This show is recorded by Masons, for Masons, and is for entertainment purposes only. And please, no wagering. This podcast is not endorsed by any Grand Lodge, and the ridiculous ramblings of the hosts are their own. And now, here's your host. Hey, welcome everybody. We are back, and it's episode 99. 99? No way. I hope somebody's planning a party. Darn, I wanted to be on 100. Well, <laughs> well if you're, that'll be a best of, so if you give us some highlights today, maybe that'll, you will. Oh, okay. Um, so everybody, our guest tonight, we actually had a, a good... Larry, this is the first time you came through with a good guest. Yeah, yes. boy. Oh. Nice. Go, Larry. <laughs> that doesn't so, say a lot for the other 98 episodes, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now listen to some of them he just had like grabbed somebody on the street in Columbia and just brought him in <laughs> and I did a, we did a show so, I thought you are right so our guest tonight is author, blogger politician Chris Hodap, welcome thank you, thank you very much thank you for having me, I enjoy being had uh, let's just let's just also say he is the author of the best-selling, uh, and then it's probably in its fifteenth edition of Freemasonry for Freemasons for uh, Dummies, and it's amazing the kind of sales you've had, and it's it's just. But he also too, he's also a co-author of Laudable Pursuits, which is about transact transactional uh, uh, traditional observant lodges. Geez, always traditional observant lodges. One of my favorite books, by the way. I can't get that out of where he's going to his notes. Are, the mus- are there muscle relaxers still kicking in? <laughs> yeah, my tongue's not working properly yet. <laughs> oh gosh. That's what she said. <laughs> All right. So what we usually do, Chris, is we briefly go around the room and uh, ask who, if anybody's been up to anything Masonically since we talked last. Larry, have you been up to anything except for changing your dressings? No, changing dressings daily, seeing a blonde nurse uh, twice, three times a week. Spectacular. Always spectacular. So no, I'm, I'm busy staying alive. Jack? Uh, other than pining for Freemasonry, uh, no, I, I'm, I'm, no, easy peasy. This will be a short segment. Uh, Tim, um, I have. Uh, we actually wrapped up. We concluded our 79th toast to absent brethren uh, when Cumberland County went green, uh, which was our agreement that we would uh, have those each night. So for 79 consecutive nights. We had um, a gathering on Zoom. Uh, We had representation from 22 states, three countries, uh, two Canadian provinces. Um, Wow, that's great. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was a lot of fun. Um, We we developed a a core group of about 15 that were regulars pretty much every night. And uh, it was just a great way to check in kind of at the end of the day. And, uh, 
you know, it, it, it certainly made um, April and May in particular go by a little smoother, uh, knowing that uh, at the end of the day at nine o'clock, you were going to get to sit with some brethren and share some bourbon and a cigar and whatever else. So. No, we understand that's converting to a virtual AA meeting now. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've continued. After, after 79 episodes, you can do that. <laughs> So, um, in addition to that, uh, I've actually attended uh, I, my AMD council met, um, and uh, fortunately, in, uh, that we were uh, small enough that we met the uh, minimum or the maximum requirement in terms of who could attend, and we spread out and all, so we were able to do that. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Kind of that was really the first official Masonic thing, I guess, that had occurred, um, and then. Um, I am uh, transitioning actually to uh, be a regional technology uh, trainer for uh, secretaries. Uh, so I'm, I've been doing some work with them. And then we can talk more about this on what's coming up. But for the last week or so, have been meeting regularly with the Worshipful Master of Eureka West Shore Lodge, number 302, and our designated safety officer because we are going to hold a stated meeting on july 6th and so we've been uh, meeting to make sure that we have a full understanding of the requirements from the grand lodge pennsylvania in terms of all of their requirements and the official meeting notice went out yesterday and we're looking forward to that but we can maybe talk about that later all right uh josh what have you been up to uh the only thing we did um our 150th uh little zoom get together last night um it wasn't anything too big, but, uh, you know, we just did a toast to uh, the founding members, uh, the grandmaster at the time, and, uh, you know, toasted the members of our lodge. So, very cool. Very cool. And, uh, Brother Chris, um, what have you been up to? I don't know. Let's put a, a, a parameter on it in the past month. He's been holding <laughs> well in the last month uh our our grand lodge in indiana got uh, delayed from may into june and then from june now into july and so uh i've been involved with some of the committees that i'm on and uh trying to get our library museum back in uh in functioning condition after being shut down for so long uh, and making some changes there to our displays and, and that kind of thing. And then uh, working on educational videos in my copious free time. Um, and so, yeah, I've got a lot of stuff going on. I'm involved in a, in a project that's, uh, that I can't really talk about for the Scottish Rite Northern Jurisdiction uh, that's, that truly is going to be very exciting when this happens. And I, and, and I am not given to hyperbole, if, if anybody knows me very well, uh, and, and this will be a truly fantastic project. So um, uh, I'm excited about that. So anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm doing a lot of stuff. So when it's time to announce that, Chris, don't be afraid to give us a call and, uh, and jump into a show. Sure. Yeah, I'll absolutely do that. All right. And I guess I'll be last. Um, I have been trying to fend off the hordes of masses that are trying to buy these uh, jewels from the quarantine uh, degree. And I've been drawing frantically trying to illustrate our next degree that's going to be in August. So we could talk more about that later. But uh, hey, we'll take a quick break and we'll come back. We'll save most of our time here for our guest. 
uh, brother Chris Hodap, and we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff. Why choose George J. Grove & Sons for your next home improvement project? At George J. Grove & Sons, we've built our reputation on quality and trust for more than 50 years. For planning to materials to installation, George J. Grove promises a home improvement experience second to none. Whether your goal is reducing energy costs, decreasing maintenance, updating curb appeal, or simply increasing the value of your home, the George J. Grove team will recommend and provide solutions that stand the test of time. Call 717-393-0859 for an estimate or visit us at georgejgrove.com. guest this evening is, uh, I shouldn't say this evening, it could be this evening anywhere in the world, is uh, Brother Chris Hodap. And uh, again, I think I mentioned earlier, and I hope it's recorded, he is uh, author of Freemasonry for Dummies, or Freemasons for Dummies. I can't remember the name of the title. Dummies. It's very successful. Masons for Dummies. Okay. And and again, like I, I joked earlier, it's in his 15th edition or printing, whatever it is. And it's, it's, it's worldwide one of the finest Masonic books that people refer to constantly, almost like a Bible of Freemasonry. Yeah, that's a twist. And he's also a co-author of uh, Lovable Pursuits, which is one of my all-time favorite books. Uh, also, too, he's, uh, uh, you, you're with the Journal of Masonic. Um, oh, geez, I had notes somewhere, but I'm sorry, Chris. You were with that. You were editor for a while. Hey, why don't we just ask Chris, hey, what do yeah, you do? Right. Just a little. It, it, it sounds painful to have him try and say all that with that cracking <laughs> voice. Um, so, so let me step in. Yeah, I, uh, I was one of the uh, uh, founding officers of the uh, journal of the of the Masonic Society. Uh, about 11 years ago, and I was the uh, editor of the magazine for six or seven years until I had to bow out because of, of some personal illness that was going on. So, um, yeah, I've, I've, um, I, my name has sort of popped up all around the Masonic world over the years. Um, I, I just, I, believe it or not, I was checking with my editor today on something unrelated, and um, Freemasons for Dummies has at this point been translated into about seven languages around the world. Which I just continue to be astonished by that. Um, the book came out in 2004. Uh, it was revised again in 2013, um, and and I just continue to be amazed at, at messages that I get from brethren literally all around the world, um, uh, giving me feedback on the book. So that's that's just in, incredibly gratifying and humbling. So anyway, I had a believe it or not, Chris. I had a phone call today from a uh, longtime listener and a fan of yours in a big way. He met you 10 years ago in Maryland when you were a speaker at the Grand Lodge of Maryland. And he went to your book signing, got a book for $10. I think at the time it was $10. Yeah, and he invited you to uh, Irish Days, 
uh, for the following day, and you actually went to Irish days. And they I remember. Out. I remember that yeah. well. I remember yeah. those guys very well. Um, yeah. yeah, that was a good weekend. That was a great weekend, and he enjoyed having you. And he said, if you're in the area, again, you're invited back to Irish days. He'll feed you and wine you and dine you and do all works. As I recall, then, that was that that uh, that day, that weekend was part of like a two month whirlwind eight state crime spree that I was on, where I was I was driving all over the the Northeast, um, and and at one point, right after that had happened, uh, I drove to Boston, gave a gave a, a, a speech at a lodge outside of Boston. Then I drove to the airport, parked the car in the parking lot at the airport, took a plane to Aruba, uh, spoke at a lodge in Aruba, and then got on a plane to go back to Boston the next day and kept driving for another three weeks all around the Northeast. Um, oh, so, God. yeah, that was, I, and that's probably what landed me in the hospital. But at any rate, um, uh, no, that was, those were wild times. <laughs> And yes, I remember those guys very well. Yeah, that was Brother Scott Hoover, who has been a guest on our show in the early days. So he called me and said he went, went over that story. I said, that's not worth repeating. But, <laughs> okay, well, again, it's great having you. And I want to talk to you about, and this is something I'm actually copied this from uh, Brother Pete Ruggieri. He said something about to me about maybe we need to get someone who can talk about a timely topic about what's going on in our country today. And... My question to you is, how do we deal with the society's challenges with people judging the past by today's standards? It's it's an enormous problem and one that has been growing um, either overtly or covertly really over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, there's been a general shift in the academic world towards um, uh, skepticism, what I call miserableism, where, you, you know, you can't talk about something positive that happened in history without declaiming the people that were involved and, and you know, pointing out their warts instead of their, instead of their accomplishments, all their failings. Um, uh, this, is, this is in direct opposition to the to the philosophy of of uh, of passing along the American character uh, for for two centuries, um, and and everything has shifted now. I mean, there's it's no accident that uh, uh, the most common books you'll find coming out in the fiction world are about dystopian images, dystopian societies. Um, uh, people are frankly miserable. Um, and, um, it, it didn't used to be that way, but, but it's a larger societal problem and free, Freemasonry is unfortunately, you know, you know, we're, we're sort of a cog in this giant wheel that's happening around us. You know, we look at the numbers that are, that are falling year after year after year, ever since 1959 in membership, but we're not alone in that. I mean, that's that's cold comfort in saying we're not alone in that. Um, but but all voluntary associative groups, uh, you know, church groups, card playing clubs, bowling leagues, uh, uh, you know, parent teacher associations, you name it, uh, have all uh, uh, dwindled in size and and importance and frankly respectability. Um, and and all of that has had a profound effect on us. Um, 
Chris, do you think this is this is a linear trajectory that we're on, or do you think this is a, a sinusoidal up and down wave kind of thing? Well, unfortunately, in terms of of those aspects, it is linear. It's it's been on a on a steady downward trend. Uh, really since starting in the mid-1960s. Um, we were sort of on the leading edge of it in, in hitting our height in 1959. But by the time you get to 1970, these trends were already pretty much locked in stone across the board. Um, and they have never shown any sign of, of rising. You know, the, the, the seminal work on this is, is Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone, which came out in, in about the year 2000. Um, nothing that, that Putnam pointed out in these trends, um, over the previous 30 years that he was looking back at, none of them have improved. Um, they've only continued to, to go downward. You know, I, I wrote a, I wrote a, a long piece on my blog, uh, uh, about a year and a half ago, I guess, where I, I, I said, you know, we all, we're all, all the Masons are always looking, we're always trying to identify the villain who killed it, you know, who, who, who caused it? You know, we, we had, we had so many millions of members in 1959. What happened? Who's response? Somebody's responsible for this. Um, and, and so I get frustrated with, with people that, that only want to say, you know, here's a problem, here's a problem, here's a problem here without ever really identifying what the tipping point was, what, what set all that in motion. I always try and look for that. And one of the biggest things that I saw was in the, there was a, there was a series of books that were passed along starting in elementary schools, starting back in the 1820s and thirties called the McGuffey readers. And it was the way that, that every school in America ultimately wound up teaching reading to students, whether they were, you know, whether they were the, the children of, of rich white guys or uh, poor black uh, first generation, uh, or I, I mean, poor, poor black newly freed slaves or, uh, or uh, first generation Italians fresh off the boat. Uh, and everybody in between all learned to read using the McGuffey readers. And the McGuffey readers reinforced in every volume Stories of positivism, positivism uh, of 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 uh, you know admirable people, uh, heroes to admire, achievements, uh, classic heroic tales. There was a it was a common vocabulary. Everybody in the country had the background of the McGuffey readers in common, and that got phased out starting in the 1930s. And by 1960, they were ultimately wiped out entirely. And they got replaced in teaching by some of you are old enough to remember the SRA reading program, where they were these individual uh, uh, learning modules, little reading uh, uh, exercises. Um, and, and suddenly they started concentrating on stories of urbanism, I, urban isolationism, um, uh, you know, people who were defeated by light. You know, you didn't have those uplifting uniformly told stories anymore. Horatio Alger stories. Exactly. I, you know, by, by the time I was in high school in the 1970s, those were absolutely ridiculed by teachers. Oh, yeah. Horatio Alger stories. Oh, my God, how stupid is that? Well, 
people bought into that um, uh, prior to that period, you know, and, and, and society is, is not the better for the fact that we've all become snarky and sarcastic and, and, you know, uh, sitting around saying, yeah, but, and always looking for the downside, um, I, you know, we're not the better for that. We don't find anything collectively positive anymore. Um, you could make the argument that the last time that happened was the, the Apollo moon landing in 1969. Um, mm. you know, it, it's just, you know, or little isolated moments like, you know, when, when the, when the, uh, uh, hockey team won in the Olympics, you know, th- those kind of little momentary moments like that. But those uniform moments of positivism and messages of positivism, um, it just don't exist anymore. I think one of the things, though, we always have to be careful of is to acknowledge that while we look at something and say, wow, that was a really positive experience or that was a great time period in our history, it was a great time period for some people. Um, there are still, um, I mean, and, that, and that's part of the dilemma we face today is that um, you know, history is, um, you know, written by the winners, you know, of wars. Uh, history is uh, written by, you know, the dominant whomever in society. And with, with having such a large, you know, melting pot society as, as we do uh, here in America, uh, we've not always been honest about our history. And I think that... Um, Part of part of telling that history and owning that history um, has led to some of the challenges that we face today. I mean, I think we uh, we all acknowledge that, and we all, as Freemasons, um, you know, we should uh, respect the character of uh, every person. But uh, we've all not f- traveled uh, in, in 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 Masonic terms. We've all not all traveled the exact same road. Uh, we well, but, okay, Tim. But, but Tim, Tim, here. Let, let me let me throw it throw it back at you. Okay, at some point, when do you stop saying, "Yeah, but this group was miserable, and that group was miserable, and these guys really got the screw job, and all of this." And and, and at what point do you say, "But"? If you stand back and you look at the history of our country or any country and, and say, you know, there, there was a reason why you had these snapshots of moments of greatness in history of countries. And we become so obsessed with staring at at the warts and saying it was really built on the backs of, of you know, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the Serbs really got a rotten deal here. They were really miserable. And, you know, and and if you do that over and over and over again and you focus on nothing but that. But here's the problem. And, and I was an educator for over 30 years. Um, you know, the, the texts that were around when I began teaching. Uh, were very slanted. Uh, I know that. I know they, that. They, uh, they did not represent America as a whole. And so when we say, when are we going to stop doing something, the problem is, is that in the big scheme of things, in a country that's you know a little under 250 years old, um, the acknowledgement of some of those things is a very small part of that history right now. We've been doing it recently, and I'm not for, you know, continually banging a drum and, uh, you know, not 
not pointing out positives uh, throughout all of our society. I'm just saying that there are groups in our country that have been oppressed for years and years and years, and that's a lot of different groups. Uh, it's easy to point to some groups, but there are a lot of groups in our country um, that have not had the advantages that some of us do have and have had. I understand that, and here we all sit, a bunch of white, you know, middle-class Americans sitting around discussing exactly. this. Exactly. Um, um, and, I, and I'm certainly not going to be the guy that sits around and tells other groups that I am not a member of how they ought to feel about something. Right. What I am saying is that Freemason. Look at look at the history of Freemasonry itself. When it was when it made its transition from operative to speculative lodges um, at the at, in about 1700 in that transition period, you had just come off of a truly horrific period in English history of religious wars, of, 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 you know, beheading a king and, and toppling the government and, and you know, the, the years of, of the Roundheads period. And, and, you know, you come out of that and people are at each other's throats and, and, and the country was miserable. And they come out in, in about 1700 and start saying things like, you know what, you're right, this is awful, and we're all at each other's throats, how do we solve that? We create an organization where we don't where we don't deal with those things. We deal with what unites us, not what divides us. And and if you want to have those arguments, you do it out in the out, out in the alley. You don't do it in here. And it created the first social organization in England by the by the 1720s. It's the first social organization in England where Protestants, Catholics all varieties of, of Christians at that time in England and Jews could all sit in the same room without beating the hell out of each other. Um, and, and when it came to America, when it got exported to the, to the, uh, to the foreign colonies by England and then eventually France, um, it, it was it was devised by the Grand Lodges in the United States. It was devised by the Grand Lodges here, uh, Grand Lodges in Pennsylvania and, and Virginia in particular, wanted to use Freemasonry to do much the same thing here, to use Freemasonry to, to train disparate peoples who otherwise wouldn't be getting along. There was a reason they were living out in the frontier and didn't want to have anything to do with their neighbors because they couldn't get along with each other. Exactly. And you, and they created Freemasonry as a civilizing force. You can, you can read in the, the notes from the Grand Lodge of Virginia where they deliberately talked about this when they were setting up uh, the Grand Lodge in, in uh, Kentucky. Um, where they were saying, let's send this out on the frontier to, A, get people to get along with each other and start cooperating for a change, um, and B, teach them how to operate this screwball democracy experiment that we're trying, because people have never done this before. They've never had the ability to vote for representation or votes of any kind. They've never had to deal with uh, uh, dealing with majority votes over something that they didn't particularly agree with. But so it, became, with. So it became part of a model. It became a model of civilized behavior, and you exactly. form a government around that model, that concept. In fact, if you look at C-SPAN and you look at the 
um, the um, British House of Commons, you know, it, it looks awfully like a lodge room. But then uh, w- what's happened somewhere in the meantime, it, it's it's lost that connection. In the 60s, it, the worst thing you could be called was square. And, and, and the reason for that was because that meant that you were a part of that and that and that that was bad and people fled from it uh, or didn't join it because of that stigma. Right. The last time I joined something, they sent me to Vietnam. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Um, so so that's when it that's when we kind of lost that traction, I think. Right. Right. Um, but. But we have an opportunity, uh, and it's going to be hard. I mean, there's going to be change. The world is going to be different, and I'm not going to use the that the N phrase, new normal. Um, but but it is going to be different, and we're going to have to adapt to it. I met the other day with a a, a, a wonderful gentleman um, who's exploring Freemasonry. His father is a past district deputy of a Prince Hall Lodge in Virginia. And he's considering our lodge um, because he's moved here and he's he's just wondering what this Freemasonry thing is all about. What a time for a black man, um, Ivy League education, to, to step into a lodge in Ephrata, Pennsylvania um, and, and, and bring a different perspective to what we all think we know. Yeah. I think it's going to be great. Um, I hope there's more of that. I, I, I just, I, it, we're definitely at a turning point. I just wonder what it's going to look like in, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, no, I, way, no way of knowing. And the worst thing you try and do is guess the future because you're already sure. wrong. Sure. That's, that's only been our show topics for the last year. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Where are we going? I, yeah. There you go. All right. Well, let's take a, uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll catch up some more with uh, author Chris Hodap and, Ask him a little bit about the history of his book and his blog. At the historic Smithton Inn of Ephrata, Pennsylvania, we're pleased to serve the latest creations from Weathered Vineyard Winery, along with spirits from Thistle Finch Distillery in Lancaster, all to be experienced in the tasting room of a beautifully restored 18th century bed and breakfast. Cigars by DNS Cigar are available for your enjoyment in the courtyard. The historic Smithton Inn is convenient to Lancaster County's most interesting attractions. Just minutes from the Ephrata Cloister and the Green Dragon Farmer's Market. And a short drive can get you to charming Lidditz, thriving downtown Lancaster, as well as Hershey, Bird in Hand, and Intercourse. Or Valley Forge and Gettysburg. Whether you're looking for a romantic getaway or an active vacation full of sightseeing and attractions, the historic Smithton Inn will be a welcoming oasis from everyday life one that you'll want to visit again and again. Stop in and visit at 900 West Main Street in Ephrata, Pennsylvania, or check out our website at historicsmithtoninn.com, or simply call us at 717-733-6094. Just ask for Passmaster Dave. And we're back with our guest, Chris Hodap. And I know most of you have read his words, but you've never heard his voice. And uh, I, I can't even say that I had a voice to assign to the words. So I'm, I'm very excited to spend some time with you, Chris. But um, how does it feel uh, that there was a recent survey uh, among f- 
new Freemasons, what was the first book of Freemasonry that you've read? And you were second to Robinson's Born in Blood. That doesn't surprise me. Uh, <laughs> in, in terms of being beaten out by Robinson's Born in Blood, I, it was the first Masonic book I read before. Oh, yes. before that, you know. <laughs> Um, um, uh, and, and a lot of that survey may have had to do with the fact that a lot of guys who answered it, uh, may have been around 25 and 30 years ago when it came out. Sure. Uh, because it was, oh my God, it was a huge, huge hit at the time. And, and you know, he was, a, he was a rock star, he was a, even though he wasn't amazing, he was a rock star in the Masonic world. Right. Um, so I read, I think, um, on your blog that, um, you weren't a Mason very long before you dove into that project. How did you, how did you come to jump onto that? Okay. Uh, 2004, Dan Brown had written, um, the Da Vinci code. And before that he had written, uh, angels and demons. And so, uh, Da Vinci code turned out to be the sixth most popular, uh, book in the entire history of the English language. And so he had been about yeah, about a year and a half before. So probably mid 2002, he made a mistake. He told everybody, or he didn't tell everybody. He told, he told a group in New Hampshire that his next book was going to be about the Freemasons in Washington, DC. And then he didn't write it for a while. He got wrapped up in a court case and some other stuff and delayed. Okay. So, so while everybody's waiting, the entire publishing world went, Holy crap, we can cash in. And that's why you had the flood of 10,000, you know, let's second guess the sequel to the Da Vinci code. And he also let people know that his uh, proposed title was going to be the Solomon key. Um, and so you had, scores of books being published by mainstream publishers about the Freemasons, all trying to cash in on Dan Brown before his book came out. And then 2004, Thanksgiving weekend, along comes a little thing called National Treasure. And nobody gave it much hope of making any money because who the hell is going to go see a dumb movie about a bunch of, you know, some historian trying to steal the Declaration of Independence? Who cares? Well, it turned out a lot of people cared. And <laughs> I did. Uh, turned out to be the, yeah, it turned out to be the top moneymaker of the year and they couldn't count the money fast enough. So uh, the Monday after Thanksgiving weekend, the uh, For Dummies publishing people at Wiley Publishing had a sales meeting and the head of the uh, acquisitions department walked in and said, we don't have a book about these Freemason guys. Call somebody, get somebody. And uh, there happened to be, they happened to be, uh, their headquarters is in Indianapolis. They happen to be located about two miles from my house. Oh, no way. Now, here's, here's the other, okay, here's the other joke. Okay, so the For Dummies headquarters is here. On the other side of town happens to be the headquarters of the Penguin Publishing owned Complete Idiots Guide series, which means Indianapolis is ground zero for dummies dummies and idiots. <laughs> uh, anyway. I've, been, I've been to Indianapolis. There you go. There you go. 
Well, if you've driven through our downtown, then you know this to be true. So anyway, so, yeah. So, um, uh, but I digress. So anyway, so um, there was a young lady in the meeting and she said, well, my dad is a Mason. Nobody in the room was a Mason. Um, and she said, well, my dad is a Mason. Maybe he might know somebody. Long story short, he got in touch with uh, uh, Rick Elman, who was our grandmaster that year. He's now our grand secretary and has been for several years. Uh, many years, as a matter of fact. And uh, Rick said, I got a guy just dumb enough to write that book. <laughs> now, now, I had never written anything longer than angry emails and and the work that I had done on Laudable Pursuit. But Laudable Pursuit had, had been issued on the Internet um, sort of anonymously by this shadowy group called the Knights of the North. Well, Rick knew who the Knights of the North were, and and uh, and I was one of them. And so that was how he he picked me off the top of his head. That does not happen to anybody. I, I mean, I hope everybody understands that. That is God on His cloud looking around on a Monday and saying, "Hmm, I don't know. You, you do that." Um, <laughs> That's true. I have, I had only been, I had only joined the fraternity. My entered apprentice degree took place in November of 1998. So, you know, do the math. Uh, you know, six years later, here I am writing this crazy book. Wow. Um, and, and what was interesting about it was they didn't ask anybody else. They didn't, they didn't nose around to, to check my credentials or anything else. They took Rick at his word. Um, interestingly enough, when, when you work on a for dummies book, uh, they have a very strict way of working. Uh, they have templates that you write within. They have a writing style that they insist that you follow an exact model of the way you set the book out. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, all of their books will be exactly 368 pages long period. Um, oh my. You know, yeah, those kind of things. Um, but unbeknownst to the author, they hire someone to be the technical reader who reads the manuscript as you send it in. And um, that person says, yeah, this guy is dead on or no, he made some mistakes or this guy's full of crap. You need to fire him and hire me or whatever. Um, and unbeknownst to me, they hired Nelson King who was the uh, editor of the Phil Athey Society magazine at that time. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, and... That's an altogether know. different style than Freemasons for Dummies, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and Nelson, because I got to see what his feedback was, even though I didn't know who it was. Um, it came in with the editorial comments as I turned in the manuscript. And so Nelson was incredibly easygoing on me, incredibly uh, kind in the things that he pointed out. He uh, uh, strictly kept it to where I had made factual mistakes. Um, and, and they were remarkably few, I, I, I'm, I'm proud to say. So uh, anyway, so that's what happened. That's how the book came out. That's how the book came about. Chris, uh, one of the things I, I had mentioned before you came on the call tonight was one of one of our recurring topics on the show is this kind of new technology and Freemasonry, and I lump the podcasts and all the all the websites and Zoom and all this good stuff. But I I kind of put you at the beginning of this. You were like one of the first. Your blog and your was one of the first places that I would learn information from other places in the country. I mean, I remember following you when 
I forget which one of the uh, Oklahoma or someone, you know, was having some uh, problems of who they weren't going to let come in the lodge or not come in the lodge. And I mean, I tried to follow everything on your blog. So how do you feel about, do you consider yourself at the beginning of that technology movement? Well, in, 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 in all brutal honesty, I envisioned the blog principally as a sales tool in the very beginning uh, mm. to, to try and promote the book. As all authors are, you know, it's ground into your head. That's what you have to do. Get out there and tub thump your book, damn it. And, um, and so that was what I was trying to do using the most recent technology that was available. It was an outgrowth of being involved in lots and lots of online forums at the time. Um, you know, I sort of got in on the trailing edge in the late nineties of the old electronic bulletin board services and sort of transitioned into email discussion groups. I was on a lot of those. And then in Indiana, we were very fortunate. Um, uh, we had a, 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 a discussion forum called the Masonic Light uh, Forum that was started by uh, Jeff Naylor, and um, and it was a private site. And uh, we got in our first real big internet trouble with a Grand Lodge over discussions that went on that. And so <laughs> then you know, and and uh, I was I've often been told over the years by seasoned veterans, you know, you're nobody in this fraternity unless you've been suspended at least once. So you know, I have that going for me so I, mean, um, I didn't have that as a goal in my masonic career yeah yeah well you know what it gives you some time to reflect so right. anyway so um but but one of the things that came out of that was we then started a statewide uh, grand lodge sponsored discussion forum um and so i was already in the process of sort of looking around the masonic world getting masonic news wherever i could find it and and posting that on our discussion forums and so the the blog became sort of a of a, of a one-sided outgrowth of that um you know so i just started posting it there and then it just sort of took off um i i, I started it in uh, 2005 or 2006, and <clears throat> I just went and, and looked at it again here. Um, over all that time, it's had about 13 million views since then. Um, uh, plus the people that see it on that see the articles on Facebook when I just post them there as well. So I mean, that's that's sort of daunting to think about. Um, uh, it's it's grown into I think 2,400 entries. Uh, that I've posted since then. So, yeah. Uh, do you feel, what, do you, feel what, you have a target on your back? I'm sorry, say that again. You broke do you up. feel you have a target on your back? There are people like uh, picking on you because you're no, so visible? I don't feel, no, no, no. I don't feel like I have a target on my back. I feel uh, like uh, I've got about 3,000 people a day looking over my shoulder. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, it's, me, it's. Me included, by the way. So, uh, so I remember uh, getting your book right after I came into the fraternity in the early 2000s, and I remember reading it, and being from Pennsylvania, I now know why I felt this way, but I read this thing, and I go, 
what the heck is this guy writing about? This isn't like what I saw. Um, and I be- quickly yeah. understand under began to understand the difference in uh, various jurisdictions and their rituals and so yeah, on. Yeah, you know, you you Pennsylvania guys, you got to realize the cheese stands alone in Pennsylvania. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So I mean, but 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 it was a great lesson because I did read it, and um, then I went to my father's home lodge in Kentucky and uh, got to see stuff there, and I went, oh, this is the stuff that he wrote about. So I will uh, I will tell you this: the the very first lodge that I visited after the book came out, the very first lodge that I was invited to come speak to was in of all places Mason Town, Pennsylvania, and uh, Jason Craig was the master then, and um, he uh, he invited me to come out, and I had never sat in a Pennsylvania lodge before. I'd sat in a Virginia lodge before, um, and they did some things very very different. Um, and then I sat in this Pennsylvania lodge and couldn't believe the enormity of the difference. And then what was interesting was Mason, the, the lodge in Mason town, um, uh, had a, had a uh, member who owned his own, uh, antique bus. Uh-huh. And once a year, they would get a degree team together and they'd all pile on the bus and they'd go to another state and put on the Pennsylvania, uh, master Mason degree as a demonstration. And so about, I don't know, three months after I go to Mason town, they came to Kokomo, Indiana and put on a master Mason degree. So I got to see it again. Um, and, and so, yeah, um, guys in Pennsylvania, I, you know, I always, it, it's always the biggest asterisk in anything that I write about when I talk about <laughs> rituals. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the grand lodge of Pennsylvania and the 10 lodges in, in, uh, Louisiana. Um, yeah. You know, so uh, but I, I, I always to this day, I always encourage people, if you've never seen Pennsylvania ritual, you need to go. And one of the things that I always find fascinating about the staging in Pennsylvania um, is that unlike anywhere else in the country, the three principal officers step down and stand around the altar while the degree goes on and the yeah. candidate is led around the outside of them. And the candidate taps the officer on the shoulder and he spins around, he says these lines, then he turns back to the altar away from him. And and it was so funny because I it struck me the first time I saw it. And I asked somebody, I said, Do you guys have any idea why you do that? And I was like, No, it's just what we do. And it's like, it says, Because you were originally doing it in a tavern around a table. And that was how you had to lead the candidate around the room exactly. in those days. And yep. <laughs> you know, and and uh so I, I find that kind of stuff fascinating because it helps you sort of trace the way things developed. I guess I'll jump back in here. Yeah. Um, yeah so, uh, Chris, recently, and we kind of started talking about this in the beginning, um, the in, in the news with the uh, Albert Pike statue getting torn down in D.C., and I read a really nice uh, blog article but from uh, Arturo de Hoyas mm-hmm. giving his take on it. Do you, what is your kind of take on the whole Pike? How should we remember Albert Pike? 
I, I've always, I, I, you know, I, I find myself in a weird, weird position um, in, in this little controversy as it's come up because over the years I've had calls from reporters. You know, this is this is not the first time the Pike statue caused controversy. It's been sort of raging off and on since the 1990s um, when, uh, if anybody's old enough to remember, uh, the uh, loony guy that was always running for president, Lyndon LaRouche, decided to make the Pike statue the center of his uh, venom. Uh, in an anti-Masonic message. But at any rate, reporters have talked to me over the years about it, and I'm in this awkward position of having to be an apologist for Albert Pike, even though I have profound um, uh, reservations about about being in defense of Albert Pike the man. Um, I don't defend Albert Pike as a man. Um, Albert Pike was hugely important in his day and, and left an indelible stamp upon a vast swath of, of American and international Freemasonry in his degrees that he wrote for the, for the Scottish Rite. Um, even those of a, you know, it was interesting, even though the, the northern Masonic jurisdiction of the Scottish Rite um, uh, is confined to just 15 states, we've always had about half of the Scottish Rite Masons in the United States in the north and half in the south, even though we have many fewer states. Um, but in the North, we never adopted Pike's rituals. Um, and, and, you know, it, for up, really up until very recently, you know, the, the, the Scottish Rite Southern jurisdiction would hand out copies of morals and dogma to all of their candidates who went through the Scottish Rite all the way up through the 1970s. Um, that never happened in the North. And I like to say up until really about after the, the early 2000s, um, you could ask a Northern jurisdiction Mason uh, what they thought about Albert Pike, and they could quite honestly tell you never heard of him. All right. Um, and, and so that's sort of the problem with, with you know, I, I addressed him a lot in my book because there are so many conspiracy, conspiracy theories that circle around what Albert Pike said or did or didn't actually say, but is claimed that he did um, uh, he, because Pike never had an unexpressed thought in his entire lifetime. Um, he, he wrote everything down and he left reams of material. And so consequently people, uh, are able to, to uh, sort of use him to, to make him say things that he didn't say by taking things out of context or just simply making it up and claiming he said it. So, um, you know, he was, he was extremely controversial, even though in his time he wasn't particularly controversial. Um, as far as his attitudes as a northerner who became a southerner, um, you know, it, it's it's a it's a stupid position for us to be in. You know, somebody brought up early in the show, you know, how do we deal with the fact that people are trying to look at things today through modern eyes at history when things are very different? Um, Freemasonry was not by any stretch of the imagination in any way, shape, or form the only voluntary associative organization that was segregated in the United States. Not on your tintype. 
um, you know, the, the, the odd fellows uh, in, in uh, uh, the late 1700s did exactly the same thing. They wouldn't let uh, black men join the odd fellows. And so the odd fellows wound up forming their own parallel organization. Um, by the time you get to uh, by the time you get to 1840, you've got grand lodges out uh, in farther western states um, um, that were turning away black men quite openly. They were having these tortured sessions at their annual meetings where they were debating on whether a black man could be a Freemason or not and, and arguing back and forth and taking years to make those decisions, which were always in the negative for the good of the order. Um, and, and so by the time Albert Pike comes along and, and starts gaining notoriety within the fraternity by the 1870s after the war ends, um, the, the, the reality was that separate but equal was already long entrenched in this country. Um, you know, parallel organizations, you know, heck, even the, uh, the Catholic, uh, fraternal group, the Knights of Columbus. Well, they wouldn't let African-Americans join them either. They formed their own parallel organization called the, 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 uh, the Knights of Peter Claver. Um, which still exists today as as a, an almost completely segregated uh, organization for black men. Um, you know, Albert Pike didn't create that. Um, and so to try and heap all of the sins of segregation on the backs of somebody like Albert Pike is is really just it's it's totally intellectually dishonest. Um you know, he 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 as a as a lawyer, um, as a uh, as someone who was involved with uh, um, uh, the Arkansas Supreme Court and later argued in front of the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in uh, 19th Amendment cases involving American Indians. Um, he was a man who functioned within the framework of his time period. And and it's really not. Uh, uh, it isn't. It isn't fair, and it isn't honest to expect anyone, including somebody as philosophical as Albert Pike, to expect them to step out of their time and say, "I want to change this system because it's just wrong." Well, peer pressure is a terrible thing, you know, as anybody in high school will tell you. And when it's your entire society around you, uh, north or south of the Mason-Dixon line, for that matter. Um, that's not something that, that is easily bucked nationwide. Chris, do you have any, uh, any projects coming up that say you have the Scottish right thing that you can't tell us about? I do. And God, I'm so excited about that. I want to start promoting it, but we can't do it yet because not everything's in place on it yet. But, um, no, I, uh, I have been, uh, tapped to be the, uh, uh, the chairman of our uh, public relations and advertising uh, committee in Indiana. So that's sort of going to be where my head's at for a while. Um, during the COVID shutdown, I took an opportunity to go back and look at some of those 2,400 blog entries to see if there was uh, any material worth uh, peeling out of those and, and trying to assemble as a book, um, which I'm going to do. Um, uh, I, I will tell you, and maybe if I say this out loud, which I've never done before, uh, maybe everybody will hold me to it. 
um, a, a uh, uh, one of the one of the guys in the fraternity that I admire most is uh, Roger Van Gordon, who was a grandmaster of Indiana in 2001. And um, he was the worshipful master of my lodge when we were on the ropes and ready to close um, in 2000. And um, he always told me um, uh, the old bromide that, like politics, all Freemasonry is local. Um, and, and that always, that always resonated with me. You know, we can all get wrapped up in national programs and national movements and let's do a big charity thing and that, you know, and getting wrapped up in this when the truth of the matter is what really matters is what you do for your local community and your local members. Everything else is is just commentary and icing on the cake. Um, and so that's something that I want to do. I want to, I want to take concrete examples from lodges around the country and around the world and really talk up positively and promote the kind of things that are working in individual lodges. Um, because I'm a, I'm a real hater of guys that sit on bar stools and wag their finger in the air and say, you know what's wrong with this fraternity and never have any solutions for it, but they just want to, you know, re-examine what's wrong with the fraternity over and over again. That doesn't help anybody. Um, and it sure as hell doesn't fix anything. So, um, so that's kind of what's in the back of my head. I want to, I want to call attention to the positive things that are happening in lodges and the things that are working in different lodges around the country. And if somebody wanted to, uh, look up your blog what, what's your website for all your all your good information if you just go to freemasonsfordummies.com and you'll find links to the blog and information about the books and uh you know uh, uh tv shows that i've been on and and that kind of stuff uh but yeah just go to freemasonsfordummies.com and you'll find it all there awesome uh well we're gonna take a quick break and we're gonna come back and we're gonna wrap up with uh Chris Oda. Hello, brethren. Dutchy Duck is here again to give an update from my lodge, the Brogan Plaw number 377. Well, another month has passed and the virus is still at play, causing us to otten the lights for another 30 plus days. Given the situation, the officers decided it was best to call all of the brethren and check up on them. We divided the membership list up and decided that after all of the calls were made, we would touch base and see if any of our fellow brothers needed anything. During our checkup meeting, past master, brother, and professor Herman F. Schnitzel had some interesting news to share. I thought I would pass these two stories on to all of you. But before I begin, you have to know something about the Pennsylvania Dutch. We tend not to hold anything back when we tell our stories, so buckle up. Among Brother Schnitzel's many calls, he reached out to Dr. Chan Salmon. Brother Salmon is our local dentist for both humans and equines. Brother John shared his story with Brother Schnitzel. A couple of weeks ago, old lady Gisama, remember her? She has all the goats came into Dr. Tsalman's office with a terrible toothache. She was scared and excited all at once. Brother John called her back to the examining room and sat her down. He asked what was the matter and she started getting all hysterical. He told her to calm down, it's just one tooth. I'll get that out in a wisp of a cause tail. 
She continued acting crazy and moaning. At one point, she said, I'm so nervous and scared, I don't know if I would rather have this tooth pulled or have a baby. Brother John replied, Well, make up your mind so I know how to position the chair. Another brother that past Master Schnitzel talked to was Brother Ronald Hinnerschitz. We just call him Brother Ronnie. Ronnie's a painter by trade and has been since the Nixon administration. Brother Ronnie shared this story with Brother Schnitzel. Ronnie had been over painting the living room and upstairs stairwell at Mr. and Mrs. Zoffer's house. Now, what you have to know is that old man Zoffer's quite the drinker. Many nights he stumbles home with half or more than half a load on, much to the dismay of Mrs. Zoffer. In any event, Ronnie had spent the day painting the living room and the stairwell walls. After a long day, he finished up and told Mrs. Zoffer that he would be back tomorrow and continue working. That night, old man Zoffer had been out back behind the woodshed, enjoying nip after nip after nip of high-proof corn juice. As he stumbled in the house and up the stairs, he put his hands all over the wall going up the staircase and smeared brother Ronnie's job. The next day, Ron came back and Mrs. Suffer asked him what his plans were for the day. Ron said that he planned on working in the kitchen. She quickly stopped him and said, Okay, but first I want to take you upstairs and show you where my husband put his hand last night. Brother Ron did a double take and told Mrs. Suffer, Ma'am, thanks for the offer, but I'm old and I'd rather just have a cold beer. I sure thank Brother Schnitzel for sharing those stories with us, and I'm glad to share them with you. I hope that all of you are keeping safe and healthy. I raise my mason jar of high-proof corn chews to all of you. Till next time, work hard, stay plumb, and out in the lights when you leave the room. In Masonic news today, while much of the country is moving from yellow to green, Masonic lodges are beginning to turn blue again. Masonic events are creeping back onto the schedules of Masons across jurisdictions, even though no one is quite sure whither we are going. It was reported that the Mystic Order of Veiled Prophets of the Enchanted Realm is planning to go magenta beginning July, while Tall Cedars of Lebanon is proud to be evergreen. That's the Masonic News. So mode it was. <laughs> and when you go to meetings, just be sure you wear your apron over your mouth. There you go. Exactly. Kind of like York right. Our new normal. Exactly. All right. Well, um, here in our final segment, uh, Chris, we want to thank you for being on our show uh, today. Um, a very interesting uh, conversation and very informative. We really appreciate you joining us. Uh, as we normally do, what have you got coming up in the next uh, few weeks? Oh, me? Um, <laughs> uh, uh, getting ready for our Grand Lodge session finally in July uh, after two postponements um, and getting reports for that ready. And we're setting up uh, video conferencing for that um, because we're discouraging people from too many people from coming in person. Um, and so that's sort of where my head is at right now. And again, uh, my uh, my secret project for the Scottish Rite, and then um, 
Uh, gosh, I've told you all the stuff I was working on. All right. <laughs> sure. You should you should be honored. We proposed a project for Scottish Rite, and we kind of got a polite uh, thanks, but uh, no thanks. Yeah, you know why? You know why? Pennsylvania, you know that exactly. All right, uh, Josh, what have you got coming up? Uh, so we're pretty much just going to be going over the uh, the new guidelines that we got to follow for opening the lodge up, um, securing our supplies, and uh, just you know getting everything with that squared away. Okay, uh, Larry, you got anything going on? Yeah. <laughs> any any uh, any ideas when Goose and Gridiron might uh, start back? Uh, soon as we, since we're going into green and they'll have some limited seating, uh, and they do now have outside seating there, and uh, I, I will be calling her probably about a week or two when things settle down after the return to somewhat normal, and uh, see about going back. And uh, it, yeah, we we we, we want to get back. We have a lot of demand for the guys to get back. Unfortunately, I think there'll be too many people that want to get back. Yeah, you might have to do uh, limited reservations or something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. All right, Jack, how about you? I There's a rumor that we might be having our AMD council meeting in July, which is cool. Uh, like to get back to that. Uh, our cave degree, Effort to Lodge number 665, free and accepted Masons, of Pennsylvania in Ephrata, uh has had to cancel the cave degree in September. We we have a, um, every other year we have a remote degree or a remote meeting, and this year the the September meeting was canceled. So sad news for that, but press on. Yep. Pete, hey guys, be sure and send me information about those cave degrees uh, when they get started up again, because I, I'm I'm. Truly, I love promoting stories about degrees that take place in unusual places. You know, lodges and grand lodges that meet in state houses, and and lodges that have uh, uh, meetings in caves, and and you know different frontier locations and that kind of stuff. I'm fascinated by that stuff, and other people are too. So sure, yeah, I'll absolutely send that to you. Great, Pete. What do you got going on? Well, um, tall cedars. Um, we kind of have made the decision to just hold off until September. Uh, normally, we go through the summer and have picnics, but we're just going to just put a pin in it and wait till September. Um, I think that's the only officer thing I have going on anymore. I'm in, I'm captain of the guard in Rose Croy, so uh, you know I've got a few more years before I have to. Uh, be important so i'm just kind of like a space holder for now so i'm just going to be mailing and trying to i'll be pimping my uh pimping my jewels and trying to get them out to people and drawing for the next degree all right uh and uh in terms of i mentioned earlier that uh, eureka west shore lodge number 302 in mechanicsburg will be having a stated meeting on monday uh, july 6th the limited seating uh if you're interested in attending to that attending that uh you can go on our facebook page or our lodge website which is eureka302.org uh, we do suggest that you sign up ahead of time because uh, we do have limited seating um we will have an we're going to have an extra meeting a week later on the 13th 
And then in August, we're tentatively planning uh, for a family night picnic uh, at the Mechanicsburg Club Fairgrounds. Uh, and as part of that, uh, we're hoping to do an outdoor table lodge. Uh, so you can uh, follow our work online and see as those dates get closer uh, what might be going on. But that's uh, kind of what's going on with me. So uh, great show tonight. Thanks, everybody. Uh, Larry, I think we're about ready to go home. So let's cue the chickens. And uh, Larry, take us out of here. Special thanks to Everett Lodge 665 for making this broadcast studio possible, although we're not there tonight. Thanks to Josh Lamberton, our producer and director, who continues to make the show great. Thanks to Jack Harley, our news director, and Tim Dedman, our marketing director. And to Masonic Light contributors Michelle Snyder, Jim Stevens, and Doug Maddenford. Oh, I want to close up with one little thing tonight. Oh, Lord. Brother Pete, Brother Pete has two dogs who provides him with unconditional love. But he also has a cat that reminds him that he doesn't deserve it. Thanks for listening. This is Larry Maris. And And Tim and Chris and Josh. (laughs) 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 Goodbye, everyone. Bye, everybody. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Bye bye.